BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today is part two of my conversation with Britt Hawthorne on raising anti-racist children. Britt is giving us more on the principles of raising anti-racist children. And we're talking about her book, Raising Anti-Racist Children, A Practical Parenting Guide. If you enjoy this episode, please let me know. And I would love for you to write a review. You can, as always, DM me on at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And thank you for being part of this two-part conversation with Britt. I'd love for you to talk through the five principles in your book because I think that's a good, not starting point because we're like 40 minutes in, (laughs) but, 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 but I love, I love the understanding of these five principles and also then being able to think about our own, you know, what are our values in our household and understanding how to merge those ideas. Yeah. So the five principles in which I talk about, you know, what am I always keeping in the forefront and reminding myself, but also my parenting partners is first and foremost, that community is at the heart of anti-racism. So we do this work to be in community with folks. And I describe community being both, it can be uh, blood relatives, but it can also be chosen family. It can be of neighbors, friends, it can be of coworkers, it can be the people that you like, but you know what? It's also the people you don't like, but your values tie you to one another. And I know that idea of community seems very radical because right now we're so used to picking and choosing the people that we like and we want to be around instead of really thinking about what does it mean to be in community with people? And at the core of that, that means is that each person is an indispensable person in community, right? So just because I don't like someone or because I don't want to go and have brunch with them doesn't mean that they don't offer value to community and to me, which is really important. So we are constantly modeling for our children and for ourselves. We're constantly reparenting ourselves. How am I being in community and going out into the world? And I just kind of want to share a few ways that we do that in our home. Wonderful. And, and also kind of things I have to challenge, which is individualism or hoarding, right? Those are, so communities at the heart of anti-racism is the antidote of challenging individualism and hoarding. So for instance, going to the public library is being in community. It's supporting social services. It's supporting public services. It's having my children be around 
people who are different. It's having them having experiences and exposure to resources, to events, to in-person classes, to author talks, to a movie night, all of those things and supporting your public library or going to your local community center or signing up for public swim lessons. You know, all of that stuff allows us to be in community. Also, even though I, we finally have a washer dryer in our apartment, we love it, right? I'm still thinking about when we used to go to the laundromat in Houston, we call it washateria, how that allowed us to be in community with people, all walks of life. I mean, you just saw so many different folks come to the laundromat and what they were washing. And it's also kind of like when you think about it, an intimate experience because you're watching someone fold their intimates, right? And children are talking and they're playing like, hey, so I, yeah. So I always think about, you know, when can we go once a month or once a quarter and still go to the um, laundromat? So community is at the heart of anti-racism is the first one. The second one is that children have a natural desire to learn. And I know that your listeners already know this and believe this about children, but I always have to both name it for myself when children say things that can be pre-prejudice or, and it makes me uncomfortable, right? Like, why is their skin so dark? Or is she missing fingers? You know, and you're like, it's like, Actually, my children have a natural desire to learn. And right now they're trying to learn about their environment around them. Right. And this is also really important because I want to create an environment where my children can learn and can grow, which means that I have to allow mistakes to belong in this space. It means that I have to model myself as we just did in our critical conversation. I also have to model like I have a desire to learn. So I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to have conversations with my peers too. The next one, the third principle is that anti-racism requires imagination, creativity, and action. And this one is really important because oftentimes folks can get stuck at anti-racism and and can get focused on, well, what are we dismantling or disrupting? And absolutely, racism needs to be dismantled. But then also, what are we building? What are we creating? co-creating, right? Yeah. And I want to do that with my children. So the example about having expectations around what's our media guidelines, right? Or what are the books that we're going to allow in our household? Or what are the books that we're going to purchase, right? It allows us to kind of imagine in a perfect world or in our world or the world we're trying to build, what is it that we hope to exist, And then we can get really creative. How do we make that happen? And then move to action in that way. I think about at Kobe school, they had a poster. They had about 16 posters up. I think I counted 16. And they all were, quote unquote, great great inventors and scientists. And every single one except one person was a white man. Wow. And the one person was a white woman. And I just was like, really? Really? Right? But it wasn't, you know, and and what I did is I ended up talking to the teacher about it and saying like, hey, I think this could actually be a really great learning opportunity. And then we say like, well, then how can we create this material to be an honest representation? Or how can we create equity? And then you just let the children kind of like, again, watch out 
because they're like, oh, I know someone, I know this scientist, I know an inventor. We learned about the person who created this stoplight, right? And then they're like, maybe we can just like make our own posters that could coexist next to it. And then it becomes questions of, you know, are we going to cover up some of these inventors or put people next to it? Can we make space or do we need to take space? So that's the third principle. Anti-racism requires imagination, creativity, and action. Britt, I love that so much. That example exactly and the way you handled it is such a, it's so, such a perfect illustration, including asking those very hard questions about what we're going to do about it, how we, I mean, I just, I'm so excited by that because it doesn't feel, and then I want to go to four and five before I detour too much, but it doesn't feel like that easy when, when I hear about moments that come up. Mm-hmm. And yet when you just talked about that with the 16 posters, asking the questions, pointing it out making space versus taking space and wondering about that all of, and then seeing where the kids kind of fly. It's like, wait a second, that's doable. That mm-hmm. is so doable. Sorry. It really is. No, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you highlight because it is doable. It's doable both on their age level. And it's also, again, critical thinking. A big part of anti-racism is saying that I want to raise a child who is a critical thinker who embraces justice, activism, and they're compassionate, right? Like they're empathetic and compassionate human beings. And so again, while these are values, it's like, how do I turn that into action and help the learners to think about like, well, is this fair? Is this an honest representation? Like, is this what you're learning about in schools? Does this match? And they can tell you when you give them the freedom, right? No, Okay, what can we do about it? Okay, so four is an anti-racist prepared environment is imperative. And so a prepared environment is anywhere that the child is going to spend time. It can be at home. It can be your partner's home. It can be um, your the grandparents' home. It can be the childcare, daycare, school setting, anywhere. Wherever the child is going to be, it's important that we're preparing that for anti-racism because... We know that it's, that children have a natural desire to learn. And we also know that if we're not careful in what's already happening is that children, racism is learned, right? So mm-hmm. they're learning racism from their prepared environment, from their environment. We want children to learn anti-racism. We want that to be normalized in their environment. So that's really important. And then the next one, Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give some examples of oh, what so it look like. I didn't want to stop you, but I want an example. <laughs> yes, I was like, you know what? Let me let me give because again, I think we say this and it sounds really good, and we're like, yeah. And then what? Now we're gonna take a break so I can tell you about my sponsors. Zocdoc makes it so much easier to find a doctor that takes your insurance that is highly rated and is available when you need them. The people who created ZocDoc found the major pain points in healthcare and said, we're gonna make this so much easier, and it is. Finding and booking a doctor who's right for you does not need to be the pain in the butt experience that it can be. 
figuring out whether they'll take your insurance, understand your needs, or be available when you can see them. With ZocDoc, the answer can be a refreshingly pain-free yes. There are some amazing doctors out there, but it really only matters if they're the ones that can actually take your insurance. And with ZocDoc, you can focus exclusively on those doctors in your network. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. So you can read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. When you walk into that doctor's office, you are set up to see someone in your network who gets you and you get healthy. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot and whether you want to see a doctor in person or a video visit, and just like that, you're booked. Find the doctor that's right for you and book an appointment that works for your schedule. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free and then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com humans, ZocDoc.com humans. My Feels makes very inclusive, specific cards that help give kids the tools and language around the range of emotions that they're going to experience from challenging to super positive. And we know that when kids have access to the language of emotions, understanding how they express themselves in their own bodies and in others, they are able to have healthier relationships. They are able to love themselves and feel more confident. This emotional intelligence program was created by a mom and a clinical therapist backed by science, using evidence-based tools. And again, when you look at the cards, they're so inclusive and such a wide range of emotional experiences that are part of the conversation. So visit emotionalintelligenceforkids.com for a limited time to get 50% off when you use the promo code HUMANS at checkout. That's emotionalintelligenceforkids.com, promo code HUMANS. Right now, go to emotionalintelligenceforkids.com to get 50% off with the promo code HUMANS. Emotionalintelligenceforkids.com, promo code HUMANS for a limited time offer of 50% off the program exclusively for the listeners of Raising Good Humans podcast. When you give samples, it feels so manageable and not to diminish, you know, the effort that needs to be put in is so important. On the other hand, finding out that things are manageable makes them so much more likely to happen. Yeah. I No, I totally agree. I mean, it's like, hey, I want to be able to make banana bread, but I do still need a recipe. So (laughs) can you help me out a little bit? And then from there, if I make it enough, I will give myself permission to, you know, get a little reckless with the almond, not the almond, but the vanilla extract. Like, I can then kind of make it my own, but you know, you got to kind of, you got to, can I get a little help here? So yes. and, I will and you, are, you are the woman for that. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> let, let me just, let me help a little bit. Okay. So an anti-racist prepared environment is imperative. And what that can look like again, is having some expectations for yourself, expectations that you're in communication with your parenting partners. And then you communicate that with your children about the toys you're going to buy about the books you're going to buy, about the movies you're going to watch, right? It becomes conversations as simple as, you know, hey, we are going to make sure this is an, an 
an author of color we really want to support. So we're going to make sure that we buy their books versus, hey, you know what? This is a great book. I think we're going to read it once and probably not pick it up again. And it's by a white author. I think we could go to the public library, right? So you're supporting, but then it looks different how you're supporting them. It also is like thinking about, you know, if your children are building and they are building with the magnetiles, you're asking them to think about their neighbors, right? So you're building together and you're like, what do you want to build? You want to build a castle or a house or a school? You know, and you let's say they say that we want to build a school. Then you can say, oh, okay, you know, how many classrooms? They're going to be a place like, have you ever wanted to sleep overnight at your school? And your kids are like, yeah, wouldn't that be cool? Are we going to have a nap room where we can sleep? But then you start to push their thinking about their neighbors that they're in community with. Oh, wait, where's going to be the ramp for the people who use wheelchairs? And what about the folks who have strollers? We need a ramp so they can get to the park or the playground. And have you ever wanted a swimming pool? and your school and you only get to be like, yeah, okay, great. How big is this swimming pool? Are we going to have a place? It's going to be like a cold pool and a lap pool. And then you're like, oh, how about, can we use these to have the ramp for folks who use wheelchairs and they can get into the water too, right? And so then you just kind of, to kind of like push their thinking, this anti-racist prepared environment. You also want to think about, again, you're being reality of your children's identities know who they are and know who they're not. And then you start to buy toys. So in our house, we don't have anyone who uses a wheelchair or uses any kind of device for independence. And so I'm really intentional about making sure like anytime the Legos come out and they have an action figure that uses a wheelchair, I'm like really intentional about buying that. And at this point, my children know. They're like, oh, did you like, mom, I know you only bought the Legos because I'm like, yes, because not only do I want to support so that the company Legos knows, hey, people are buying this. Maybe we should make more. So like, I want to support that with my money, but it's also, you should have that in your toys. Like those are everyday people you can play with too. That can be your superheroes and can be the villain and like they can be anyone. So I think that's really important to think about when we're preparing our environment a couple other things we have in our household is we love milk crates. And so we have a milk crate for the Houston food bank and our children know that they can go through and let's say we were at the grocery store and they were like, I really want these cookies. You know, we like went back and forth about it. I was like, you're never going to eat them. And they're like, no, I do. I want them. I want them. And then we get home and then they sit and they're like, you have not eaten these cookies. They're going to expire next month. Do you think we can redistribute this to the food bank? We still got 30 days on them. You know, it's like, yes, let's put them in the milk crate. Mm -hmm. So that's something that my children, they take on that role. And again, we have clear expectations. Expired food is no place for um, redistribution of food. We have those for our toys. We have those for our clothes. When it gets full, my children tell us, oh, it's time to share with our neighbors. Like that's really important that both the language that we're using, but I also make sure that they have the tools and the support to be in community, and to practice that in our household. And then number five is re-parenting is required. It's so important that we as adults enjoy the, the growth that comes along with this, that we also enjoy the learning and unlearning that will happen of like, oh, you know, I've never thought about it that way, or I don't know where I pick that up, or I didn't know that that was outdated language, you know, and just get really curious and be like, Ooh, I, I wonder why, or I wonder what's the new words that people are using now that makes that makes a community feel most affirmed, or 
It makes a community have more dignity and respect. <sighs> I'm like, I forget. I just, I am in love with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so mutual. I'm trying to think of where the best place to bring this is after these five principles of anti-racist values are very consistent with resilience research. Oh, I did not know that at all. It's really kind of cool because in this meta view, it builds collective resilience. Can you share more about that? I am not at all familiar with collective resilience, so... Well, one of the things about resilience, which you didn't realize you mentioned maybe, but you did, you were talking about movies that have like the story of someone who overcame quote unquote racism. Mm -hmm. That whole narrative actually puts the onus on the individual and you can't be resilient. It's totally, it, you, you can have characteristics or traits that are more closely linked with or associated with a resilient outcome. But you, you need a community that has support systems in place and you need a competent and loving caregiver in order to have a chance. So when a movie tells you or a book or a story tells you the story of someone who overcame racism, what happened was the minute that you give the credit to the individual, you actually are taking away so much from the majority of people who are not going to quote unquote overcome racism. Mm. And so it's not that I wouldn't want to celebrate anybody's incredible accomplishments, but it takes an adult who was a loving support with boundaries, whether it's a parent or a proxy for a parent a teacher, a coach, whatever. It takes a community that is cheering you on, right? Like it doesn't just happen because of the individual. Yeah. And the, the reason why that's so important is because the, the idea that someone who isn't set up with community that is able to give those things is supposed to somehow pick themselves up and get through it all is asinine. And it's actually quite destructive. And then it makes you just look at people and say, you just need to be more resilient, which is absolutely bonkers. It's bonkers. It's just bonkers. And so when I see these core principles, what I see is ways of building this collective resilience because we all as humans need these support systems in place in order to to have capacity for that resilience. It's it's never living inside of one person. Oh my goodness. I feel so proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, look at you know, pat on the back, look at me. I just I love when when different works can overlap, right? Like when yeah, mental health can overlap with anti-racism or abolition overlaps with anti-racism and you know, like things can just, and you're like, yes, because this is all interconnected. Of course, of course it is. And, and actually the, the, the problem with not having conversations in different, you know, when fields are siloed, but they're kind of cousins mm -hmm. is that you don't discover all of these really cool 
components that build human consciousness. And I, I, I'm always mesmerized because even within the field of psychology, it's super siloed. And then you have conversations with someone who's in a different branch of the, this field and you see all of these things that make sense together or that are true in other contexts. And so it just, it only highlights the importance of all of these constructs that are just so imperative for our health and well-being. And they're so imperative to build an anti-racist world. Yes. So anyway, what's something you can do when you, like right when you turn this episode off as a parent, as a caregiver, as an adult who interacts with kids, what's something that you can do? But I mean, that's sort of, that feels lame. I like that question. I want to be very careful with something you also taught me, which is centering the conversation appropriately in whatever way I need to in order to raise anti-racist kids. But I also recognize that that's centering my white children and not necessarily the place to center the conversation. And yet that's, that is where I can do a lot of work. So who's this book for? What do I do when my brain goes, like, how do you center the, how do you center the conversation in the right way? And also acknowledge that you're going to have to center your family because we each need to do our part. Yeah. I I really appreciate the question of like, who's this book for? Because again, I think that some people are like, oh, anti-racism work is for white people, not my work right. or vice versa. Right. Vice because versa. there's all this kind of shifting of the blame and accountability and work. And, and truth be told, the book is really for anyone who has a child in their life that is looking to raise an empathetic, critical thinker that knows, has justice work, justice skills, justice knowledge and language, and wants to create the change in the world that they want to live in. And so, and I do that both by, I'm the main author in the book, but I have a co-author, Natasha Iglesias, who is incredible. And we have about 15 contributing authors as well where we're trying to get as many folks involved in the conversation to give people tools and strategies, scripts and activities that they can do that says, hey, you know, I'm a family of that has Asian descent or I'm a family that is indigenous and this is how anti-racism is looking like for us. And so the book really is for, can be new caregivers or seasoned caregivers. We have something in there for everyone along the way and anyone who has a child in their life. So if you're a godparent, you're a chosen parent, you're a step-parent, you're an auntie, an uncle, you're a family friend, the book is for you. And then the second part is how do we continuously recenter the conversation when you are a white family? I think, you know, I'm just going to keep saying this again and again, it's so important that you're having honest and open conversations with your parenting partners by saying, not just I believe in anti-racism, because that doesn't really tell us what or how we're doing it, but it's the how and and the what are we doing. So I believe in anti-racism. And so therefore, this is how we're going to make a commitment every pay period, how we're redistributing funds to a mutual aid organization or, or to an, a local organization. Or I believe in anti-racism. And so therefore, you know what, we're going to skip the latest Marvel movie if it only has white characters, white leads in it. And instead, we're going to take that money and maybe we're going to go to 
a play down the street that a community center is putting on, right? So I believe in anti-racism and then what? Get that really clear with your parenting partners and then communicate that with your children. And then last but not least, you got to create, and in the book I talk about this, you got to create a brave space. Um, you have to create a space in which your children can hold you accountable because it's so much easier to see somebody else's stuff than to see your own. And your children, when you give them permission to hold you accountable, oh my goodness, watch out because they will. You know that it's supportive when you're accountable to somebody. You know that it's performative when either you have a sense of urgency and you just want to do something for a really fast, quick fix it. Mm-hmm. Or that you're doing something because everybody else is doing it. And I'm going to give you an example. Oh, goody. <laughs> a land acknowledgement. So uh-huh. I recently wrote a blog post on land acknowledgements and I made sure to put in there because I knew it was coming that what if the land acknowledgement is performative? Uh-huh. Because I hear that from a lot of folks is like, oh, but land acknowledgements are so performative. For me, they're not performative because first and foremost, the indigenous folks that I am accountable to have asked me as a non-Native person, it is your work to do land acknowledgements. It is your work to know the name of this, the names of the treaties, the names of the people, the names of the tribes, the names of the language that either did exist or do exist. That is your work to know. That is also your work to educate other people to build awareness. And it is also your work as a non-Native person to move to action of what are you going to do now that you realize you're, you benefit from stolen land, right? Mm-hmm. And that I know that. So when someone says, well, Brett, your land acknowledgement is performative, it's, well, first of all, I'm accountable to somebody because I'm in community. This community is the heart of anti-racism. Number two, I know that it's not performative because I am recentering the conversation not to benefit the comfort of those who hold dominant identities, not to benefit settlers, right? Not to benefit those that are occupied that oftentimes when I do a land acknowledgement, it can people can feel a lot of discomfort in it. And that's okay. I allow that truth to take up space. So I think that's different than when some people do land acknowledgements that are performative. And I know that they're performative because they've spent all of their time writing this really, really beautiful, beautifully written land acknowledgement that, you know, is naming the waterways. It's naming the landforms. It's you know, really talking about a lot of harmony and peace and kind of romanticizing not only the land, but the people. And it leaves everyone feeling like, hmm, that was a beautiful meditation. And then not only does it leave folks who who shouldn't leave feeling comfortable, it leaves us feeling comfortable, but we also have no action, right? It's like, what do I do with that? So that's kind of a way that you know when it's like performative versus supportive, We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor, Talkspace. Therapy is obviously an important part of mental health support, and I fully support mental health. So I love that there is more availability of quality practitioners who can help you get the support you need, especially at a time when mental health is challenged and mental illness is on the rise. No matter where you are in your mental health journey, talking to a therapist who's trained to help can make a huge difference. Talkspace takes some of the pressure off that first step. 
It's a more flexible, convenient, and affordable way to get high-quality care at a time when it's really hard to find clinicians. Once you match with one of their licensed therapists, you can message them anytime through the app or schedule a live session if you need some FaceTime. There are thousands of therapists and dozens of specialties. Talkspace is a private, secure, and most importantly, accessible app. It's everything you love about therapy without the stuff that gets in the way. If thoughts and emotions are piling up, a fresh perspective can help you feel better. Match with your dedicated therapist today at Talkspace.com and use the promo code HUMANS during signup to get $100 off your first month. That's $100 off Talkspace at Talkspace.com, promo code HUMANS. Do you wish you were better at planning for the long term? Are you a one in a hundred investing genius? Then you probably can fast forward this ad. But... For the rest of you, the 99%, don't skip this ad because joining Wealthfront sounds like a pretty smart idea for you. The secret to Wealthfront's performance is great software. It's built to make it easy, rewarding, and even delightful to build your long-term wealth. Wealthfront's automated trading optimizes your portfolio based on your own risk settings, helping you reach your financial goals without lifting a finger. They also get you automatic tax breaks that can boost your returns, even when the market dips. Like a bonus coupon you can redeem at tax time. You can go to Wealthfront's expert-built portfolios, including a socially responsible option that's designed around sustainability, diversity, and equity. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to Wealthfront.com humans. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash humans to start building your wealth. Wealthfront.com slash humans to get started today. Go to Wealthfront.com slash humans. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash humans to start building your wealth today. This is a much less, I mean, this now feels a little goofy, but like on Instagram, I'm always kind of like, I mean, obviously I support this day or this election or this story or this person, or I'm seeing like a movement on Instagram that's like, I I mean, like think of the black square. Mm. Now, in my heart, I feel it's performative. And I'm conscious of the fact that If I do it, I am saying like, hey, (laughs) I want to stand here and say the right thing and make every, you know, be an ally. But I also know that I can't, I have no idea where the origin of the movement was, first of all. That's Mm -hmm. what scares the shit out of me about Instagram anythings, because you don't know what, where it started from. But also I wonder, is this like the easy thing to do or is it, it's easy, why not do it? Yeah. I think again, like not only did it, it was not uncomfortable for folks to do the black square, but in a sense, they felt community, which I think during, you know, the pandemic, people really were looking for of how do I be in community with other people? And not because I really know what the black square means, but everybody else is doing it. And I just want to be in the in crowd, performative, right? Right. And we know it's performative when it's a one and done 
if you haven't like actually, again, moved to action, if you haven't changed any behaviors, if you haven't had any critical conversations with people, we are now two years coming up on two years out of the black square happening. And again, this isn't at all meant to evoke judgment for anyone. It's just meant to build awareness and to say, ah, white domination is at it again. They got me, but they won't get me again. So then how can I next time, you know, or how can I start today making di- taking different actions? So you almost have to really just check in with yourself to make sure that you don't just go on autopilot of, okay, I did that. I checked that box. And I was thinking like, it's silly sounding, but I remember MLK's birthday, Dr. King's birthday. There are beautiful quotes everywhere. I'm so aware of those beautiful Mm -hmm. quotes, but I'm also aware that like, there's something like not a full story in those quotes and that there's, that, that, that it makes me feel good to post the quote. And so that makes me think it's performative. I'm going to pass. Is that an example? Yes. That's, that's definitely an example. Right. And it doesn't have to be an either, or it can be an, and okay. Like I'm going to post the quote and I'm talking about how the other 364 days I'm working for justice. Okay. I'm working for black lives matter. And I, there can be an, and in that conversation, it doesn't have to be only if I, because anytime we fall into binary thinking. We, we usually, you know, that you went down the wrong road and you should turn around. Right. Uh-huh. So any kind of, we do either or thinking turn around, you're going the wrong way. But yeah, I, I think about those quotes too. It's again, it makes people feel warm and fuzzy, especially those that aren't directly experiencing the harm of the prison system and the policing system and racism. So it feels very performative. And then the other 364 days out of the year, crickets. I think right. I want to name one other thing too, uh-huh. is that I think people have to, again, justice work and advocacy and activism is all about skills. And there's a particular skill set that has to be learned. Just like when we, if we learned how to swim or ride a bike or tie our shoe, right? No difference than that. And the idea that activism is posting or resharing or changing a Facebook profile is just misguided. Mm -hmm. And while that symbolism is important, it doesn't, in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the four domains of racism. It doesn't actually change any kind of policies or laws that exist that really do disadvantage folks of the global majority. Last question. (laughs) This is so um, selfish of me to ask, but I'm, I just want to know what you think. Where does comedy fall in to anti-racism? Because I grew up, I, just to give you context, where there was a lot of twisted humor about the, the lived experience of my grandparents. And it's a, it's, it's actually pretty, it's a pretty standard Jewish sense of humor where it's just super, there's just a lot of stuff that's said and joked about that would make people incredibly uncomfortable. Were they not Jewish maybe? But I have always like, I, I, whenever I watch comedy, I'm like, where do we land here? Is it, is it that comedians can do whatever because it's kind of just like 
that's that's the thing. We just like it gives us a collective sort of relaxed moment to laugh at everything, even the things that are horrifying. Or is that not cool? And where do you fall in that? And I, 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 I don't know what made me think of it. I think I was just watching some comedian the other day and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to talk to Brit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am in the camp of that. I think that we can have comedy that's not rooted in oppression or discrimination or othering people. Mm-hmm. I also want to say full disclosure. I think that there's an art form to comedy that I am unclear about. So I don't, if I could have my perfect day, I'm, I'm typically not going to a comedy show. <laughs> so my, and it's interesting you ask this question because my partner and I, we go back and forth about it. He loves comedy and we go to comedy shows and I, and I, and I want to make sure that I'm emphasizing that there, I do truly see that there's an art form in comedy, just like I think there's an art form, you know, in acting and so many different aspects. But I'm in the camp of, especially if you're not, and I know you're talking about if you are in a, of that lived experience. Yes, yes, yes. I'm definitely like, if you're not in the lived experience, no, like jokes are not okay. But if right. you're in that lived experience, I would like to think that that those jokes don't exist. And instead, what people really are saying is I need therapy in order to process through it. But I don't know. Can I say that I'm I'm still pending my ideas? Yes, of course. You know, I'm a rom-com, Gal. sappy love. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm definitely a rom-com gal. But yes. I do also like have, I, I yeah, I wondered about that. And then I was talking to you and I thought, I would like to know what Britt thinks. <laughs> Yeah, I am definitely I, – I used to be very hardcore, like far on one side of those jokes are never okay. We get older though. <laughs> yes. It's like I, back to when we were off air recording – I mean not recording. And we were saying just some things are comical. <laughs> right, right, right. And, right. and also they're comical – and if you can't laugh at them, the alternative is just yes. being so enraged all the time that sometimes it just, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's comical. Yeah. So, yeah, now I'm like, mm, I guess the comedians, there's an art form, all of that. It's a, that is so interesting. Now, of course, I'm going to have a different lens when I look at things, but. Do you ever watch Dick Gregory? No. Okay. Well, if you ever find this like YouTube, I think of like Dick Gregory, for instance. I think he's a, a, kind of an example of the comedian you're telling me about and definitely has lots of jokes. And I'm like, there is an art form and there's this. And it's like, I think I think another, another avenue of doing almost like awareness. And it, it's like a collective awareness. Like we are all going through this experience together. Yeah. At the end of the day, this is. <laughs> This is what this is where we are. But I am beyond grateful and so excited. And I mean, if anybody listens to this and doesn't want to read that book, I would be floored. Floored. <laughs> I, I just I love how this idea of I was not born woke, but I'm enjoying waking up and both like in that morning visualization. Sometimes uh-huh. I don't actually enjoy waking up. <laughs> 
Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm like, but right now this feels really good. But other times I do enjoy it. And I think that's just where I'm at. And I hope that other people like you, but also your listeners also are like, hey, I'm waking up too. We are all waking up and sometimes you're absolutely right. You just want to stay in bed, but you got to get up. Yes. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful night. You too.